Are you looking for ways to optimize your health and performance and take your running to the next level? Well, look no further than Inside Tracker. Created by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT, Inside Tracker provides a personalized health analysis and clear recommendations, plus an action plan on how to live healthier, longer. For those with heart health concerns, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now also includes a test of APOB, which directly measures the concentration of plaque building particles in the bloodstream to give you a clear picture of your cardiovascular health status. You'll receive important health insights along with a personalized analysis and recommendations for all 44 tested biomarkers. For Doctors of Running podcast listeners, you can get 20% off of an Inside Tracker order today by heading to insidetracker.com/doctorsofrunning. Don't wait any longer. Take control of your health and performance today with Inside Tracker. Visit insidetracker.com slash doctors of running. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today at the round table, we have Dr. Matthew Klein, Dr. David Salas, and I'll be your host, Nathan Brown. We're excited to be together again and talking about uh something very in our wheelhouse when it comes to what we do day to day in working with people with different sort of pain conditions. And we're going to be talking about something in the foot. So we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, But before we do that, we are going to be trying out something new today. This is going to be a new segment that we might continue through our time recording the podcast as long as you all think it's a good idea. We also don't have a name for this segment. So if you hear what we're doing and you have an idea for it, let us know. You can comment in the video below. You can send us an email at doctorsrunningpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think we should name this segment. But what we really want to do, we get a lot of people asking us about what shoes are you testing? What are you thinking about them? We just wanted to take a minute where we can each talk about a shoe that's not fully brought through our testing protocol and done with our testing process, but one that we've been starting to test and we could just give some initial thoughts. So here we go. Let's, Let's start with you, David. What's a shoe that you've been just starting to get on your feet and what are some initial thoughts about it? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm still coming back from the marathon, so I haven't done a whole lot of speed work or anything yet. Um, I probably will this next coming week. Um, But when looking at the shoes that we're testing currently, um, I did some strides in it yesterday. I've been doing some strides throughout the last week, so kind of getting the legs back into turning over. Um, I did 13 as the maiden voyage, a little over that in the New Balance SC Elite today. Um, Version 3, yeah? Yeah, SC Elite 3. Yep. So new design, you could sell deep groove, kind of looks a little bit like the SC Pacer, but more stacked up and, um, yeah, more built for the marathon distance. Uh, it feels pretty good. I, some of the things I'm noticing, the rocker is much more balanced than some of these other shoes, which I like. It's not as aggressive on the toe spring up front, so it feels like something that I can probably have a little bit more variability with pace on. Um, feels nice at slow paces, which is good. Um, feels good at fast paces. So it's nice and versatile from a pace standpoint. Um, haven't taken it to the track, but I probably will this week. Um, I did notice in the upper a little bit, like the, I think some people have been talking about the lacing system a little bit and I I felt it a little as well. Um, it just bites a little bit. And sometimes the top outside eyelet, like the, the furthest one up kind of, cinches into the top of my ankle a little bit and that's not the most comfortable but then it kind of goes away and then sometimes it's there sometimes it's not um it's something i can kind of look past though for for this model but something they can definitely clean up in the future but for the most part the transitions are actually pretty balanced like it's not like as dramatic of a rocker as some of the other shoes so it's like definitely there it's definitely noticeable but it feels much more balanced underfoot nice matt what about you what are you testing lately should I do one or two? Let's or pick do, one. Let's pick one. All right. Um, yeah. I'm going to have to – I want to do other things. Sorry to be so racing-focused, but the Saucony Terminal VT, um, this bike, you can already see it. It will be available fairly soon. But it's a distant spike from Saucony using their uh, Power Run HG foam. And I'll be honest. I've been testing some track spikes, and every time I get on the track, I'm like, oh, here go my calves. I'm be a little worried. This has actually been pretty nice. You still need good calf strength. But what I really love is it's getting back to being super weight. This thing is 3.7 ounces for men's size 9. So it is – Super yeah, light on foot. It goes back to the, like, hey, I want that. I want just as light as possible. Still, it's not soft cushioning. It's with this much here. There's still plenty underfoot, but it's got some nice bounce without being crazy. There's no plate. There's still flexibility. 
it's just a fun shoe that you could just put on, forget about, and go run fast. So I've enjoyed doing a couple of track workouts in this. I'll continue getting some stuff on here and get a review soon. But it's been really nice. Really, really nice. Good. Fit really snug, like a typical spike. Yeah, it, it, it's very classic for a track spike where I can't – it's very true to size. I can't wear socks or it's too big. Sockless, no chafing at all. It's You just strap it on, very comfortable. But yeah, very snug, definitely. This is not for wide-footed people. Cool. Well, mine, I'm, I'll take us away from racing a little bit, unless it's a different kind of racing. But I uh, got 15 miles in this shoe this morning. It's the Solomon Ultra Glide 2. Um, I will – you know, I wasn't going to take it out, but we, we've been getting a lot of snow this week. <laughs> so it's a lot of snow for March. We just got probably over the last couple of weeks, we've gotten like 12 to 18 inches. And then we got another like four last night. So it was a run in the snow, took it for 15 miles. A um, couple unique things to Solomon is their kind of quick lace system. It's kind of that bungee system, not bungee because it's not stretchy, but it's got that slide lace that can tuck into the, to the tongue. Um, and you know what? It felt fine. I didn't have to adjust it at all. I didn't feel like it was loose. I, I do kind of, I'm, I'm curious how it's going to last over time if it'll slip at all, but it didn't today. And just having to tuck it up in the top part of the tongue, I did feel like the tongue was a little high, so I could feel a little bit of rubbing on the front, front of my ankle. But besides that, it was good. Underneath though, it felt great. I mean, I, I have to keep in mind that this run was on top of like inches of snow so that changes the experience of the ride completely but it's operating on a kind of semi-rigid just no plate or anything from what i understand but just a semi-rigid forefoot but it's got this full rocker design um really smooth rocker and i i felt like the cushioning was great it's a firmer foam as is typical with a lot of solomon stuff but not not rock hard it has a little bit of give to it felt super comfortable i didn't it, it kind of just disappeared for me today and it was a non-event in a really good way for a, like a long easy slow long run so i'm excited to get more miles on this and i'm going to be working on the ice age trail which is a thousand some mile trail in wisconsin so that's where i'll take this out um, but so it might take me a little bit longer to get this review out depending on what sort of conditions we have because we're still getting tons of snow but um i did get a good good amount of time on my feet on it today and i thought it thought it performed well really cushioned uh upper like the heel uh is really stuffed so i did find that it got a little wet because of all the slush and stuff um but it wasn't uncomfortable and I've, I just appreciated it. I'm excited to get more miles. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. So all these shoes that we just talked about, if you keep tracking on our website, they will, you know, be released full reviews uh, with thoughts from either just one of us or multiple from the people from the team. So keep an eye out. Again, if you have an idea for a name for the segment, let us know and we might take it and, and use it for the podcast. But now we're going to transition into the topic for the day. Um, again, it's a foot-related pathology or issue. A lot of people call it plantar fasciitis. We'll talk about what that term means and if it's the most appropriate term to use and why. Uh, but we're going to be talking about plantar fasciitis. So our subjective of the day is have you ever had plantar fasciitis and what did you do about it? Because this is one of those where there's a lot of myths that permeate conversations. There's a lot of shoe tech that says, oh, if you have plantar fasciitis, you should have arch support. You should have all these things. So we just want to talk about those. Where's the merit? Where isn't the merit? And uh, as always, we do that through a little bit of a deep dive. So David, I'm going to pitch the first question to you if you're up for it. Can you just tell us about what is the plantar fascia from uh, an anatomy perspective? What's its function and that kind of thing? What, what, what is it? What's kind of structure? Yeah, when we take a look at the plantar fascia from an anatomical standpoint, it's essentially a band of thick tissue that's passive. It goes from the heel bone, connects all the way up through the bridge to the basically to your forefoot. And it goes underneath there, and you have all your intrinsic foot muscles, everything underneath, and kind of gives you a little passive support there. Um, it ends up being a little bit more dynamic than it sounds because it is not a contractile tissue, but at the same time, Things like the calves or the intrinsic foot muscles can greatly affect how this is moving, stretched, tensioned, slackened, all of the above, including some things further up the chain. But essentially, it's a passive support structure that acts like a little bridge under the foot. And so when people have plantar fasciitis, um, itis in the medical world kind of means inflammation. Um, they usually get it right at the base of the heel. Sometimes it's kind of cupped up on the inside a little bit, kind of underneath and on the inside of the heel um, on that medial aspect. And usually it's irritated with 
you know, when it's inflamed, at least things like running, pushing off, walking, weight bearing, using your leg. So, yeah. Yeah, great. Matt, you want to add anything to that at all? No, I think that's great. Great. DJ hitting out of the park. So let's talk about a little bit about Matt. You know, David just talked about what plantar fasciitis is. We talked about inflammation. Another term that's used is fasciopathy. Some people say plantar fascia pain. Um, What's the difference between those two terms and why are they used? Yeah, that's a great question. I think very commonly in the medical community, fasciitis. So itis always means acute inflammation, right? This thing just got irritated. You've got a traditional inflammatory response. Our body's like, oh my gosh, this is hurt. There's damage here. We got to go fix this kind of stuff. And yeah, that's how a lot of things are coined, right? So patellar tendonitis, Achilles tendonitis, and the plantar fascia is very much like these other things. There's actually some interesting arguments that the plantar fascia may not be uh, just a ligament or other type of tissue. It might be actually considered similar to a tendon because a lot of the pathologies and the way it responds is actually very similar to a tendon. So some theories that it might be an extension of the Achilles tendon. That's a different story. But going back to the question and staying on topic, fasciitis would refer to like, hey, this just happened. The challenge with this is, and we know this from some of the exploratory literature out there, that it usually didn't just, oh, it just got hurt. This thing has gotten loaded for a long time, and there may have been an inflammatory response a long time ago, and you may not have known. You can have an irritation and not have pain. That's a whole different discussion on what pain is. But what we're finding with a lot of these things is, This often got irritated a long time ago. You may have felt something, you may have not. So when it actually starts showing up and you're noticing it, it may be a fasciopathy, which the opathy or osis, so the tendons are called like tendinosis or tendinopathies. Those are the long-term chronic irritations where how it's getting inflamed is no longer like when it just got irritated. You know, if you have an acute or very short-term irritation, you, you try to calm some of that inflammation down, maybe reduce some of the swelling, right? And anti-inflammatory, although there's some argument about that, may be helpful to calm things down a little bit. That's not how these respond because the inflammation there isn't just happening. It's been sticking around. It's well acquainted with this area. It's, it knows this neighborhood super well. And anti-inflammatory and stuff typically, typically do not work for these because it's just different. The pathology is different. So that's just what we've learned. So a lot of people are like, oh, I'm taking these anti-inflammatories. They're not I'm icing. I'm not doing anything. It's like, yeah, that's anopathy. This has been going on for a little bit. When it started, don't know. We just know that you notice it now, and hopefully that means you're going to do something about it. So you're kind of talking about like how this progressive loading over time, this kind of repetitive irritation that you may or may not feel. Um, can you talk then about what are these mechanisms that do irritate it? What is it that puts stress through this structure? David mentioned weight bearing, but kind of just talk about what what stress and strain are as it relates to the plantar fascia a little bit more? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to say a couple of comments, but know that as we learn more, this concept might change. So the previous evidence has been that this is a passive structure, meaning, you know, there's no muscle attached to it supposedly, and it really is just there as a kind of ligament, kind of not, to provide some passive stability to the arch and the under the, the plantar underside of the foot, right? It kind of supports a couple different components, the different bones that are there. And, you know, for some people, keeps up a high arch. For some people, they've got a little more laxity, keeps it a little bit lower. Don't worry too much about that. Um, the question again, well, I'm sorry. Just mechanisms of yeah, stress and strain. Of 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 s- stress and strain. <laughs> so there, sorry. It's Let's been a give long Matt a week. break. He no, just no, no, finished I, I another. I got it. I got it. I got it. He just finished another boards exam. Yeah. Third one. You're fried, uh, man. Fourth one, technically, right? Because original one and then three more. Okay. So it's too many. It's too many. So mechanisms of irritation, very common ones, since they t- the ligaments tend to be and keep your f- arch up a little bit. Excessive motion going the other direction, as people would call it pronation, which I don't want to say that's a bad thing, but just motion that continues to go that direction excessively and stretch that tissue can certainly be a mechanism that can irritate it. We know from some of the systematic reviews that having a little bit more like kind of collapse, excessive pronation there that may be loading that. We actually know that the opposite is true, that having a very high arch has also been found to be a risk factor for plantar fasciitis. So, and you will see this theme is that a lack of motion 
or too much motion seems to be a risk factor for the for the plantar fascia. So too high an arch or too much motion through the arch seems to be ways that can stress that tissue. Um, going up to the knee, they've actually seen that a varus knee alignment going out that direction, going out this way can actually be a, a mechanism for stressing it. We've seen excessive load through there long term. So excessive amounts of standing, especially if you have a little bit higher weight, that tip, the higher weight typically works more for the non-athletic individuals, the ones that are athletic, that doesn't seem to matter as much for anybody that has got to stand on their feet all day and they're continually loading that tissue certainly can be a risk factor for that. We've seen some interesting studies where forefoot pronation actually can stress out a little bit more based on where the ligaments attach. I already mentioned excessive amounts of motion. What's weird is from some of the reviews that we've seen, actual impact, not as much of a risk factor, like loading and stuff like that, but prolonged excessive pressure can be a little bit more of a risk factor. And the other thing that's very unique is there is not one shoe that's been found to reduce this risk. The only thing that we found is that a shoe rotation is the only thing associated with decreased plantar fascia risk. You asked me for risk factors, but I'm going the other way too. <laughs> well, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk more about shoes yeah. um, at the, at the end too. Cause I think, you know, that's obviously a question that people come to us about to kind of think about the practical side of utilizing shoes. But go ahead, Matt. Sorry. And of course, how could I forget this? The other thing that's excessive or uh, too much is that we found that a lot of people think, oh, I got to stretch this. So we found that too much ankle mobility, so your talocrural joint, your bending, too much mobility and too little are both risk factors for plantar fasciopathy or fasciitis as well. Yeah. Well, and David, maybe this is a question for you to kind of start talking about. And when we talk about too much or too little of something, I think something that's often tied to the conversation around plantar fasciitis, um, as it's talked about, or plantar fascia pain, is what impact do low arches or flat feet um, have on that? And maybe on the other side, those high arches, this has been kind of, we've dabbled with this a little bit, but what kind of thoughts do you have on terms of what, what do we know about the relationship between uh, flat feet and plantar fascia pain or high arches and plantar fascia pain? Yeah, I think the question is bigger than the two categories as well. Um, Klein kind of alluded to this, but let's say we have too much ankle mobility, probably have some laxity, things are moving around a little bit. Just I, What I tell people is having a lot of range of motion in and of itself is not a bad thing as long as you can control it. And if you can't control it, now we have issues because you're going to start doing things with other joints in order to make the motion happen in a smooth way. So usually, and this is more generally speaking, but if you have more mobility, let's say you are a little bit more flat-footed, the ligaments, they're a little bit more lax, there's a little bit more going on, you're going to have kind of a greater arc of motion there, just in general. Um, that may be through the ankle, that may be through more knee flexion, that may be through more hip rotation. It could be a lot of different things going on, but um, normally you're going to have a little bit more of a moment there. If it's a more of a flat foot pronation type presentation. Now, if it's the other way, you have a high arch. Again, generally speaking, you're gonna it's gonna be a little bit more taut underneath. You're gonna be in a little bit more of a supinated position, and at rest, that's where that midfoot subtalar joint everything's a little bit more locked out. And that's great if you're pushing off. You want to have tension. You want to be able to lever from that forefoot and really get off, and and push off. Um, however, if you're in that position a lot, you don't attenuate force very well. And so it goes both ways. And that's strictly speaking at the foot, but that can also happen, like Klein said, with a varus knee position. It's going to set you up for a little bit of a predisposition to be kind of on the outside of that foot anyways. Um, so I, I think the question's so much bigger than just pronation, like flat foot, high arch. There, there's a lot of things that can go into that passive and or dynamic position. But generally speaking... Usually when it's a little bit more lax, you're going to have a greater range. You're going to move through a larger range. You just got to be able to control it. With having it a little bit stiffer, not moving through a full range, you may have to work on mobility a little bit more and or control yeah. elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's big. And something I think that you hit on is that's important is it's not so much the presence of a flat foot. In fact, when you when you look at 
the systematic reviews about risk factors for plantar fascia pain, it's not just the presence of a flat foot. That's not even on the list. It didn't even make the list. But what did make it is your ability to control those motions and how much time you're spending there during a movement um, like running and the vol- how much velocity it, it, you're driving into that position. So it's a lot more about control, which means it's not about your foot. It's about your foot, your calf, your knee your thigh muscles, your hamstrings, like everything is involved because it's about the whole movement pattern and not about the presence of a flat foot. But what is what does make the list is what's called a cavus or cavus foot uh, uh, arch profile and posture. And so that's more of the high arch people. Um, And so that's when, you know, if, the, if, if your foot never goes through motion to attenuate those forces, like you said, that means that the only thing that's going to take the stress is going to be the plantar fascia because the bones and joints can't contribute. So you only get the one thing. So sometimes those flat, flat foot might even help some people because look at the risk factors based on systematic reviews say that it's high arches, not low arches um, that play a role. And then it's all, everything coming together to control whatever movement that you have going on. Matt, did you have something? Yeah. And I want to add again, a lot of the evidence has been a little iffy on, Hey, a static foot posture. Although ironically, as you mentioned, and as we mentioned, it's that high, some of the higher arch positions are actually increased risk. And I think you hit it on the head where you said, you know, that tissue's never gotten a chance to stretch or move very much. And so if you ask it to do that all of a sudden, then all of a sudden, yeah, that makes sense. Whereas somebody that has a flatter foot posture, they might have a little bit more laxity in that tissue already. So it's already going to be able to handle that stretch. That doesn't mean you still can't overwork it. And you certainly can. It just means just because you have flat feet, don't freak out. Same thing. If you have a higher arch, also, don't freak out. You got to know, hey, there, it's never one thing. And that's that's the key. That was one of the big factors from these systematic reviews is it's never one thing. It's always a culmination of factors. So trying to pinpoint one thing is not a great use of your time. But going, hey, I got a couple of these things. I might, you know, might want to start addressing some of those. That's probably a better way yeah. to handle that. Go ahead, David. Yeah, and I, I know our niche is primarily running. But when you take a look at plantar fasciopathy, whatever you want to call it, you know, fasciitis, I think it's important to take a look at the direction of load, too. And anecdotally, people that have had a little bit higher, you know, cavus positions in that midfoot, I've noticed it a lot, too, in soccer players and a lot of people that have to do these forceful um, horizontal plane motions, you know, where they have to go in the frontal plane, I mean, sorry, where they have to go um, into a very forceful adduction and or abduction moment, and they have to be able to control their limb as they move into that space. And if they can't control it and they're planting just really hard on those passive structures, that might lead to some other irritation in that area as well. And that might actually lead more to some of that fasciitis in some cases, you know, if it's an acute ramp up and they're just slamming it into the ground, um, coming from an angle, you know. And that's what's challenging about the plantar fascia is it's this wonderful tissue that actually helps you transfer forces. So people are like, oh, I should cut this out. And they've done that. It's not the best idea because then you lose a method of force transfer. So when you're landing, right, this is what helps as you start transitioning through that that gait cycle as your foot goes flat, especially as you get onto the forefoot. When you get onto the forefoot, the plantar fascia actually helps lock everything up. So as David mentioned, you can now push off from a rigid platform rather than – well, platform is not the right word. But like a rigid – Base? Foundation? What, what am I looking for? A rigid base, a, a rigid foundation rather than kind of a more loose one. So you can actually transfer your force better. The challenge is when you're trying to do that in ways that maybe it's not set up with, like excessive frontal plane, side-to-side motion, you're really loading that, you don't have as good a movement control, that might be a little bit more challenging, right? So, you know, it's just asking, are you using this tissue correctly, I think is the big, big thing. And if you're not, which again, what good and not good will be very different for each person. That's probably where it's going to get pissed off. And again, the, the difference going, you don't know when that happened. And that's the really hard part. That's why history is so important going, what do you do? What kind of activities are you working through? What, is there any changes? Things like that. That's why when you're working with a medical professional, we're kind of looking at yourself too going, was there a change that happened? Or has this been this long standing thing that keeps getting annoyed? That's where it can be challenging. Yeah. Yep. Also, when Matt, when did you lose the bucket hat? Uh, I just took it off because my head it's it. getting too hot. My head is sweating. Fair enough. Which is Fair gross, enough. You're hot headed. Yeah. It's fine. All right. Oh, yeah. So let's move yeah. forward. Yeah. This outfit change <laughs> mid podcast. <laughs> 
What are All right. So um, one of the things that I like to do when I'm looking through, you know, systematic reviews or any sort of study that's trying to identify risk factors for something, I kind of do two two things. One of them is I try to understand the why behind each of those risk factors. That's really helpful from a treatment perspective. If you're a physical therapist, um, that's a really nice exercise to do is to understand the why behind each of those because that can help you determine treatment plans. And then in the same vein, what I like to do is look through the list and try to find the modify easily modifiable risk factors because some of them are fixed things. They're part of who you are as a human that you can't necessarily change, but there are ones that are very easy easily modified, especially through exercise. So in the case of plantar fascia pain, when you go through the list of all the risk factors, some of them are low toe flexor strength, less hamstring flexibility, excessive or limited ankle mobility, um, and then overall a total lack of regular exercise. So if you're kind of a weekend warrior. So when when you look at those things, there's easy exercises to add in, whether you have this or, you know, Prevention's tricky. We can't measure prevention very easily, but if you do want to, you know, stay healthy, you can look at risk factors and then minimize your risk factors for that thing. In theory, that may help you. So, can we talk a little bit about some tips when it comes to reducing your risk factors for plantar fascia pain? So, again, things like toe flexor strength limitations or hamstring flexibility, excessive or limited ankle mobility. Like, are there things in those realms that you like in terms of maybe some of your own routine that you do or things you prescribe to patients um, to help with those sorts of limitations? I think one of the key things, just because there has been some increasing evidence on some of the intrinsic muscle strength of the foot, meaning the muscles that are specific to that area. And ironically, there's been less, a little bit less of the extrinsic ones up higher. But, you know, some of the smaller muscles like your toe flexors or your medial arch muscles are all muscles that sit either around or top of just that basically support the this tissue. And while the, the plantar fascia itself is not contractile, all this other stuff is. If you can keep that stuff really strong, which a lot of people don't use that. You don't go around, you know, when you're an adult playing in the grass and wiggling your toes around. People don't do that. It'd be great if they did, but people don't do that. So – Keeping the muscles strong that support that tissue is really important because David and Nathan both said this. It Mobility, you know, you want to have some mobility. There's a balance of it. But you really want to make sure you have control of it. And that control is going to come from muscles, especially muscles locally. You know, there's some other ones farther away that you might want to pay attention to. But definitely keeping that foot strength up is really important. And there's tons of ways you can do that toe flexor stuff, the yoga toes where you have the, the, not the thumb, the big toe come up and the other one stay down and going back and forth. It, it, to be honest, does it really matter? No, it's just get that stuff moving, I think. Um, But yeah, just keeping some intrinsic foot muscle strength. The other thing is being aware if you're a really stiff or really loose person. If you're really stiff, you might want to work on your mobility. If you're a really loose person, you might want to work on some movement control, right? So it's working on the things that you don't have kind of is that guide and you don't have to go overboard but just make sure things are a little bit balanced you don't have to be perfectly lined up that a perfect alignment is a lie that's not a thing but going how do i try to keep myself in the middle as much as i can and then control it when i go out of that is probably the best wisdom i can give without getting into specifics I think that there's a, a couple that I really like both when it comes well, – I'll start with kind of intrinsic foot stuff So um, and extrinsic, just total toe flexor strength. So um, if you – again, like you said, Matt, if you go on YouTube and you just Google – or if you – oh, my gosh, go on YouTube and Google it. I guess they're the same company. But if you go on YouTube and you, and you look up toe yoga – there's going to be a lot of options. Check them out and try them. What I will tell you is that they're going to say, do this motion with your feet. And you're going to look down at your feet and be like, my feet aren't moving. Oh yeah. And it's going to feel like you can't do it. And it's going to feel like you're not able to. And that's kind of the point. If that's happening for you, that's a sign that this is a really good thing for you to work on. They're going to say, lift your big toe and keep your other ones on the ground or keep your big toe on the ground and lift your other ones up. And you'd be like, I can't do that. Or they'll say, splay your toes apart or create a, just like an arch, increase the dome in your foot. You'd be like, how in the world am I supposed to do this? 
just keep practicing. To work on it's it. a skill yeah. and it takes time. It's neuromuscular yeah. control. Um, so that's, that's, I would just look those up and just give it the diligent time. And there are things that you can do sitting at your desk wherever, or if hopefully you can work an active job too, but it's easy the, to do. The easy best do. time and people will know then, this now is those boring zoom meetings where you're like, why am I here? This is, that's the best time. So the parent teacher conferences, <laughs> the work meetings, those are the best time to do those because then you'll actually get something done i hope my boss doesn't i just want to put it out there i've been doing foot exercises through this entire segment that's great (laughs) and y'all have no idea so it's perfect things that you can do and i'll even do it while i'm talking with patients sometimes like and i'm like you guys can't tell unless you look at my foot and they look down i'm they can see my toes like in my shoes and I'm like, now, let, now let's try it. <laughs> this is really inappropriate, but I'm going to still That's say it. BJ might cut, cut it out. It's it's like pelvic floor exercises. If you do it right, no one else should know. It's true. There's nothing wrong it's with true. that. No. Yeah, okay, okay. I didn't know if that was going to get cut out if somebody said it's inappropriate, but, you know. Um, I, I think the other thing when we talk about limited ankle mobility, um, there's two different now there's more than two, but there's at least two things that can limit your ankle mobility. One could be the muscles like your calf muscles. Think about easy calf stretches, hanging your heel off a step or a lunge kind of a stretch where you're stretching the calf in the back. You could stretch both your gastroc or your soleus. If you keep your knee straight, it's more gastroc. If you bend it, it's soleus. Long holds are the key for muscular stretching, like a minute plus to hold those things. Maybe I think the evidence right now in stretching is kind of like four to five minutes a day of stretching is what's needed to create actual um, changes in muscle length. So that's a long time. (laughs) Um, The other... The, is that, say is that all at once or can that be spread out throughout the day? I've seen some about like two sets of two minutes or something like that. Like, it can be yeah, spread like out. a three to five type yes. prescription, yeah. It's not – I think that the, the segments need to be at least like 45 seconds to a minute, but then you need a total of five minutes of that uh, throughout a day. But – that evidence is is squirrely. So it, just take for what it's worth. The point is you have to hold for a long time. It's not a 10-second hold that's going to get you changes. That I think that's the, that's the big picture point. The other thing that can limit it is the actual mobility of your ankle joint. Um, and so a, a stretch I like to do is to take – you kind of have the two ankle bones. Matt, do you have your ankle model on you? He has always got it. So if you're watching, you can see this on YouTube. If you're listening, I'll try to explain it well. If you're two like bony ankle bones at the bottom of the ankle, what you want to do is take a like a band and you'll put it just below, so in the front of your ankle, and then put the sides of the band below um, those bones. And then you'll somehow secure it behind you. Sometimes you can do this half kneeling. You can put it behind your back knee, or you can be standing and you can step on it behind you. And then you just lunge forward. And the goal of that is to create a glide through the talus or the bottom part of the ankle joint so that you can practice bending forward and creating mobility through your joints. So those are a couple that I like for gaining mobility in the ankle. I also like the ones for, like we talked about, for intrinsic foot strength. David, do you have something? I, Klein, how do you say that bone? The Taylor, the what? which one? The Taylor yeah, Cruel yeah, joint? Taylor. Or, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I say Taylor. Oh, are say, you making say, fun of me? No, no, I, I say Talus. He, what do you? I, I just say, say, I just I say, say the whole thing, the Taylor Cruel, I say Cruel joint. Yeah. But but the bone no, it does not it doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't Both matter versions are funny. correct just, depending I, I heard, yeah. on where you are I, in the world don't yes yeah yeah, yeah. I, I know I say talus I just, sometimes I, I, I say talus I mean uh, I, I'm following you it's not like I'm not yeah. it's just yeah. so for listeners <laughs> it's that like, it's like wow what is that word that like, is a what's the name of what's the name of the carpal bone <laughs> that is most commonly fractured with poor blood supply how do you guys scaphoid? say that scaphoid 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 I say scaphoid. Oh, I say scaphoid yeah, too. I know people call it scaphoid. The, student, the yeah. students I yeah. work with, the, the students I work with, made fun of me for saying scaphoid. What? They're like, "What?" And they're like, "It's scaphoid." No, I've, I'm I've like, heard, "We're from Wisconsin, aren't we?" Yeah. So for the listeners yeah. going back, I believe that, it's scaphoid. That, that what what Nathan <laughs> is describing is an ankle joint mobilization <laughs> that is specific for the talocruel joint or the point where the tibia and fibula actually meet the foot. Um, if that is stiff. Traditional stretching may not make an impact because you got whatever intervention you use has to be directed at the actual impairment. So whatever thing is stiff, right? If it's the cap that's stiff, if it's the joint that's stiff, if it's both, great. 
you can use whatever. But if it's one of those, you're going to need to have the appropriate thing to get that thing moving better. Because if you don't, it may not make an impact. For those people that tell me, yeah, I've got this stiff joint or this this stiff, I don't have very much made range of motion. I was told to stretch and it actually makes things hurt more. That's a cue. I have to test this, but that's a cue that goes, oh, that's probably not the calf. That might actually be the joint that's stiff. Because if, jo- if you're trying to stretch something that doesn't normally stretch, it's going to load the tissue more and it may not like that. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just good information. Just make sure you're treating the right thing. Yep. And that kind of brings us towards the next couple of things. So um, I'm going to add just a couple more tidbits about like how it sometimes feels or presents when you do have this kind of pain. A couple hallmark signs for plantar fasciitis or plantar fascia pain or plantar fasciosis. I prefer whatever. No, it doesn't matter what I prefer right now. Um, but what, (laughs) one of the hallmark signs is if you're not on your feet for a while, if you're sitting in a chair, you're getting up from bed, those first couple steps have a, have the most pain to them. And that pain, like David said, is usually on the bottom of the foot, close to the heel bone. Um, that's the most typical place to have, um, the pain come in. And usually it's pretty pointed and sharp, um, in that region for those first steps. And then it kind of dissipates as you walk for a while. And then if you do too much activity, it can come back. But I think the most common pattern is a lot of pain right after you get up, goes away, might come back if you're on your feet for a long period of time. Um, And then you can restart the cycle if you sit and wait. Ironically, very similar to how irritated tendons present. They don't do super well if they're they're not moving. As soon as you get them moving, you kind of can warm up through it. And then as soon as you too much, they get pissed off. So very common. For those that have things that present differently, that might not be plantar fasciitis. That was my next question was going to be anytime that you think you have something, I mean, you can find the answer to anything on Google doesn't mean that it's the right answer. And most times if you say I have pain in the bottom of my foot, Google doc is going to tell you, Dr. Google is going to tell you that it's plantar fasciitis. What other things though, could it be? Because differential diagnosis is always important because if you're treating something that it isn't, you might not actually get better. So what else, Matt, what are some differentials, some other things that can cause discomfort or pain down there that might look similar? Yeah. So there's a couple of them. Some of these you're going to have a hard time figuring out if you're not a medical professional, but I'll still go into this stuff. And it's not to freak you. I was just going, hey, just be aware of this. Um, one of the more common things you got to realize that's not the only thing that's there, right? So one of the classic signs is, hey, you got pain right in front of that heel bone right there. But you also have a ton of muscles that attach there as well. If you have more symptoms up further in the arch, that usually starts to make me think, is this one of those arch muscles, right? If it's a little bit more forward, it's the same thing. So a muscular strain or a tendon issue of those muscles is a very, very common thing, especially for people that aren't responding to traditional things that typically tend to work for plantar fasciopathy, fasciitis. Muscle stuff is super, super common. I would, I would say in that realm, um, not muscle, but tendon, I would say I've had a lot of people come in saying, I have plantar fasciitis, and then they end up having post-tib insertion irritation. So the tibialis posterior wraps around the inside of the ankle and attaches right on the inside of the arch on the navicular bone and, and kind of sp- and splays out areas. from there. Yeah. But yeah. yes, but... But that's a that's a common area of pain that people just ascribe to plantar fasci- fasci- fasciopathy when really it's the tib post. So I'd say that's for me that's one that I often like find clinically that's different than if it was um, plantar fasciopathy. Any other? Yeah, go, why not? And then I have some fun ones. Yeah, like why not the fibularis longus? That I see that all the time. Yes. You know, and if you take a look at that muscle, now this around. one's, uh, yeah. it's one of your plantar flexors, so it's on the backside, but it also, it everts the foot in isolation. It's, it acts like a little stirrup functionally when you're weight-bearing, and it comes down the outside of your leg, wraps right around that heel bone, or not the heel bone, but the ankle bone on the outside, and it goes right around that lateral malleolus, and it kind of cups underneath the foot and actually goes down to the base of the first toe. And it's one of the things that can help depress that toe, create that rigid lever we were talking about earlier. And sometimes people will have irritation there and it feels like foot pain. And it can be anywhere from the outside of the foot down through the base of the foot. It can be that. I've had some great toe flexor strains, believe it or not. I mean, we got sand here. So like um, a lot of things that require a lot of range of motion and things like that. 
Um, so there, there's just a lot of things that can be going on down there. And I mean, Klein said that, you know, and yeah. I'm going to add some of the, the extra fun ones. Or even a so, stress fracture. Why, yeah, like calcaneal stress fracture. stress fracture or, or, or something or calcaneal. It's like yeah. those, that's still possible. Yeah, not to freak out. The other stuff that I find really common for the people that have that chronic plantar fasciitis that never seems to get better and they jump around from person to person is oftentimes nerve. You have several nerves that pass right through that area. So a nerve tension test is a really good – you got to be careful with those – is a really good way to go, hey, is this something different? And nerves, you got to treat very differently than a lot of stuff. So nerve is definitely an option. The other thing that I commonly see is referred spine pain. So this is so all my residents, fellows, and my students I always say, hey – any any inkling, check the spine, L4, L5, S1, a lot of the those vertebrae will refer and send sensation down to that spot. So check that. And if you've got anything there, that's an easy place that will refer that won't change with anything that you do to the foot. And you gotta maybe look up a little bit higher. And just to just to say this for the sake of anecdote, um, in the last two weeks I've had two patients come in, not for foot pain, but for isolated knee pain. Um, where all of their knee testing was negative, but when I tested their spine, that's what recreated their knee pain exactly. Um, so this isn't a thing that never happens. So screening time. your screening Check your back, and if you're alone, um, that can that can mean doing you know end range motions of your spine and just kind of bending backwards, forwards as, as long as you can, as far as you can in those positions, and just seeing does this change my pain in my foot or my knee? That could be a first step. Obviously, working with a PT would be a great way to actually get that screened out but um yeah this stuff it's not like it never happens it's pretty it's frequent not, actually it's, it's more of a yeah. zebra but um but it can happen zebras do exist it can happen so, you know. zebras yes. exist <laughs> zebras yeah. are real yeah. too yeah what do you got yeah, david just to put a little cap and kind of weave it all together another thing we talked about earlier was hamstring length and sometimes it's not genuine hamstring length it could be neurological tension as well impacting that and so Doing things like nerve glides, I mean, obviously doing it smart, but testing for those things. You know, is there an entrapment? What is going on? Is it a length issue? How can we work on getting that neuromuscular connection to actually work in the way you want it to? Because um, that could be something that's higher up and, and feeling it in the foot. And if you stretch your hamstrings and you feel your foot getting warm, <laughs> that could be yep. some some neurological tension there. So Totally. So let's start kind of transitioning from talking about causes and all this kind of stuff to what can we do to help it? You know, what are the things that are assuming that it actually is plantar fasciopathy um, or plantar fasciosis? What actually helps? I think when we hear about plantar fasciopathy, we hear roll it with an ice bottle. So like freeze an ice bottle and roll it. We hear um, get arch support and rest that probably are the three things that i hear most commonly or if somebody comes in what have you been doing for it well i got one of those spike balls that i can freeze and then i can roll on it like there's a lot of remedies for this that people commonly use what kind of merit is there for those and and uh, orthotics would be another one that i think is very very common um what, what sort of I don't know. What's the merit of those things and what do we actually, what can we hang our hats on? So I'll, I'll jump on this and the, it's not to say that nothing works. I really want to put that out there. It's that most of those interventions, so there's been, there's short term, there's been some good evidence for acute use of things like orthoses or arch support insoles. There's been some good stuff for something called a night splint, right? You know, when you tend to sleep, some people will have their feet plantar flex and you wake up, that stuff's really stiff. So it's trying to make that stuff a little easier. Taping has also been find, found to have some short-term relief of symptoms. Manual therapy or, or self-mobilization where you're using the ice cup or you're using you know the, the spiky ball that you paid way too much money for and you could have just used a golf ball or tennis ball. Um, those things have had some good short-term efficacy for this kind of stuff. It's not – it probably won't solve your issue. So don't get super pissed off when you're like, hey, I did exactly what you said and it hasn't gone away. Because unfortunately, one of the best things that we've found is time and trying to, you know, trying to figure out why this thing is getting loaded, getting loaded in the first place. There's not very good evidence for a lot of the modalities. So stuff like laser, I've seen the shockwave stuff is getting really popular. I've seen very, very, very mixed evidence on that kind of stuff just because this is a unique tissue. You got to make sure you have the right stuff. 
I surprising have found kind of mixed results for needling. I think because needling, in my opinion, needling tends to work better for muscle than some of these tissues, but you know, I don't do it as much as I would like in California. But time seems to be one of the biggest factors. We've even seen some kind of back and forth on some of the strengthening stuff. Where there's some people have had these protocols where you do really intense loading of the tissue just like you would for a tendon. And for some people that works really well and some people it doesn't. I think one of the big things is trying to modify whatever stress might be irritating this and then trying to make sure, hey, let's slowly reload this, keep you moving how whatever method you can. And just give this tissue a little time to heal. That doesn't mean stop running, by the way, for the runners. It means if you can still handle the running without pissing this off too much, you're good. Just make sure you modify some stuff so this thing can heal. Yeah. I I think what I want to do is drive home one point that you just made about orthotics. Um, or even just, just kind of reinforce that idea. Um, I think oftentimes, regardless of the medical professional... There's a chance that they recommend that you go get custom orthotics if you have plantar fascia pain. And there might be somebody that that's the right move. But from what we know, (laughs) it's not usually the option you need to take. When there's the talk about short-term benefit, that's usually two to four weeks of benefit for that acute more... uh, and acute's not even the necessarily the right, the, the highly irritable phase of this to help with symptoms. And those can be bought over the counter. Um, they can be cheap ones. They can be whatever is just feeling the most comfortable under your foot, whatever's providing filter. The, you know, pressure or support, like find the thing that feels the most comfortable in that moment um, for that short term t- period to allow some of the irritability to calm down. But most people are not going to need to go and buy 200 pair of custom orthotics. Please don't do really that. Common. <laughs> that's that's kind of what I wanted to hit home because I think it's so common for that to be recommended for a, pretty much any foot condition. And the evidence on orthotics is that they have benefit for the short term short term time. Obviously, like I said, there are cases in which, yes, you might need an orthotic, but that would be if you're wor- you've worked with someone for a long time and you've tried all of the things first. If you've tried all of the things and all of the things, like Matt said, there isn't a, a, a cookie cutter recipe to you know solve all of these problems, but you go with an impairment-based approach, you figure out where are your limitations, you work on those, you give it enough time to work on those and for the tissue to calm down. Because if you're working on strength and neuromuscular control, Give yourself 20 weeks. <laughs> I hate to say that, but like true strength gains aren't going to happen for 8 to 12. And then you have to relearn how to move and how to keep things relaxed. So give yourself long periods of time. This is pretty common now for a lot of different conditions, even um, a lot of shoulder conditions now, even like slap tears. Um, they're saying conservative management for six months before you even consider surgery. So you really, and obviously this isn't surgery. This would be getting, well, there, there are, are surgeries. surgeries. There's a lot yeah. of surgeries for, for different things yeah. for plantar fascia pain. We're not going to dive into those, but um, yeah, I just wanted to reinforce that one. David, anything else you want to add? Yeah, I think we've missed uh, something pretty big, actually. Um, I've been hearing a lot about stress, irritation, avoiding those factors, those types of things. One thing in the short term you can do as well is take care of yourself. Get sleep. There's a lot of good healing things that happen when you're asleep. And there's a lot of people that are running themselves into the ground expecting nothing to happen. And they wonder why they keep getting worse and or not getting better. And so like sleep and and this isn't the case with everybody, but it it's not. It's, I've, only, I've heard this a few times where someone's like, oh, I stopped drinking beer and my pain went away. You know, like some people who drink regularly or do things that abuse their body or they have different inflammatory things from a chronic healing standpoint, they're impairing their own healing. And so just some small lifestyle modifications, not to say don't ever do that, you know, um, but uh, to just try and keep tabs on yourself and just take care of yourself. Make sure you're getting enough sleep. Make sure you're eating decently well uh, because your tissue will notice it. I would say that's probably one of the biggest – that's probably one of the most important things. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up to address first because oftentimes those can be some of the easiest changes. Can you get an extra hour of sleep? Can maybe you cut down on some activities that cause more of those inflammatory processes? Inflammation isn't bad. But if your body is if – it's, if it's happening in a way that slows your body's ability to recover like alcohol does, like other, other things might do, like a lack of sleep, like stress, like all those kind of things – 
you might want to see if you could knock those out because you might be surprised how quick this starts clearing up or at least you can facilitate the healing a little bit better. But I think that's a phenomenal thing to bring up. Yeah. Totally. Thanks, David. And also just get strong calves. Strengthen them. Probably good for pretty much everything. If you want to run, have that's, strong calves. That's true. Ironically, there is some very <laughs> interesting evidence that those people – I'm not saying don't have strong calves. It's really important for running. One of the systematic reviews we were going over said that people with plantar fasciitis actually had stronger calves. Calf dominant. <laughs> sure, but that's not that doesn't say that's not causing no it's not it was just a correlation those are, those are correlates yeah. which i would bet but comes yes, from guarding but, right because the calf muscle starts working really hard to stop that tibia from going forward and causing any stress so it's not saying don't have strong calves i'm just just trying to cause chaos that's it yes you should be as strong as possible yeah Get intrinsic muscle strength uh, calf strength glute strength quad strength hamps everything yeah. cool so now I want to ask kind of two more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. So here's two, the two last questions are one, if I have plantar fascia pain, can I still run or what kind of guidelines should I use to know if I should run or not? Cause that's always on the forefront of our minds as runners. The second is the shoe question. Are there shoes? What should I consider? I guess maybe that's, that's the better question. What should I consider when selecting a shoe? If I have, um, plantar fascia pain. Take either one. Um, I would say when it comes to running, and this is something that I tell people, especially with this, is that if if it is if you can tolerate this as run, with running and you're not having to dramatically adjust your mechanics, that's a good place to start. But the other things that you really have to pay attention to is how you feel right after your run, how you feel late. I said two, three, how you feel right afterwards, how you feel later in the day, and then how you feel the next morning. Because if your symptoms are way worse the next morning. That might have been a little bit too much. But if you wake up and you're like, hey, you know, it's actually the same or it's better, you're probably okay to do that. What I would I would highly suggest is don't keep doing the same thing. If you're running like 100 miles a week, it might be better for you to modify that a little bit. You know, maybe drop that down a little bit, more manageable level. But you're going to have to test and see. If things are super flared up and you start running and then it gets to the point where you can't even walk, you shouldn't be doing that. If it gets – if you're able to get through it and later on you're like, oh my gosh, this is getting worse, you might want to pull back. you got to see what your body can handle and what it can recover from. So there's no cookie-cutter approach. There's uh – there's this is not validated for plantar fascia pain it was created and validated for achilles tendinopathy um by cybernagel and what what she created was something called the pain monitoring model and when you use it for i think we've talked about it a long time ago on the podcast maybe but the way it works for uh achilles tendinopathy is they they took two groups all who had achilles tendon pain Half of them got to continue running using the pain monitoring model. Half of them had to stop running. They both did the same rehab, and they both ended up doing the same. So when it comes to the Achilles, this is something that if we do an Achilles one again, we'll probably bring back up. But basically the rules in that is that your pain – and the reason that the rules existed in in the Achilles world is because they took ultrasound imaging of the tendon, and with – following these rules there was not degradation in fact there was continued healing of the achilles tendon from an imaging perspective so what those rules stated was that if you could run with pain less than a five or five out of ten or less during the activity after the activity the day the morning after the activity and it doesn't worsen week to week you can keep doing that amount of activity. Um, So again, if your pain or the stiffness, pain or stiffness, worsens more than a 5 out of 10 during, after, the next morning, or if your symptoms are worsening week to week, that amount of activity is too much. If it follows those rules and you can keep the pain under that 5, and I usually tell people 5 is kind of the tipping point between soreness and like sharper pain, then you're fine to, to continue that amount of activity. So... Again, this is not validated for plantar fascia pain. But if you're looking for something to guide you, I think that's a kind of a nice framework to use um, to have the idea of how does it feel during, after, and the next day, and week to week, am I getting better or, or worse? That can tell you is the amount of activity I'm doing too much or not. So um, it, that's in the, again, not for plantar fascia pain, but I think it's a helpful kind of framework. 
David, do you have any other thoughts on that question, or do you want to start talking about shoe considerations? Yeah, no, we got to give I the think... most important question to David. People have been waiting the whole time for this. <laughs> Ever, everyone's been waiting, you know, yeah. three years of podcasting, whatever it is. This this is the moment. No, just this episode, <laughs> but that probably this too. is yeah. <laughs> the end the all Super Bowl of questions. This is a Super Bowl. No, question. yeah. Um, I mean, you kind of hit on the head, I think, with looking at all of the other things, that there's not really a cookie-cutter approach. I, I think if someone just tells you put a hoka on, like, I I don't know if I would jump right on that and listen without much other reasoning, you know, attached to that. Not to say that it doesn't work for some people. It certainly does. But I think looking at why it's happening, looking at the impairments... Let's say you are going through a wild range of motion and you need to decrease that range of motion. Maybe having something with a higher drop might actually be good. You know, like decrease the length that your ankle has to actually move through. That might actually make your foot better. And that has nothing to do with a rocker profile or a high stack. And that's just a simple static measurement. Like that's nothing, you know, I I, I get hesitant to just say like, go buy that shoe, you know, um, and I think comfort's a huge part of it too, right? And you talked about it, like some discomfort's going to be normal. Like if you're at a five out of 10, you know, like to me, that's pretty high. I don't know if I'd be rolling the dice on that, but still like knowing that some discomfort is okay to some degree, right? Like if it's manageable, it's not getting worse. You're going day to day. If you like the shoes you're in, you can stay in the shoes you're in and work on the other things. You know, I, I wouldn't just jump ship just because your foot hurts. You know, it, it'd be like doing the same thing for a hamstring or a hip or a knee or your back. You know, there's so many things that could be going on. And I know that's not the answer that our listeners probably want to hear, you know, but <laughs> um, but for some people, maybe they want a little bit more cushioning. They want something a little bit higher up. And for them, if they like that sensation and they like that feeling, by all means, do it. You know, like that's if that's working for you, then do it like and there are some days where that's what I want, you know, like my body just kind of tells me and I'm like, first, I don't know why, but this shoe is calling to me and I want to wear that shoe and I will wear that shoe. And that's regardless of whatever we're testing, you know, like I will break testing schedule for my own health, you know. And then, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, there's no specific magic shoe for plantar fasciitis. I think that's probably just the point we got to drive home here. Can I add on that? Is that it, the a lot of the suggestions that you'll hear, right? So David mentioned the classic ones. People will suggest high drop. They'll suggest a rocker shoe that's really common. And that might work. It also might be problematic. Some people, by having a higher heel drop, this is the Adrenaline 23. So if you have that and lift it up, the embargo's not oh, – we're good. I promise. Um, the – I think um, the I lost my thought process. A higher heel might be better for some people because it shortens that tissue. For other people, it might increase the stress right in this area. So it may or may not work for you. The more maximalist, this is the only one I have right now. I know it's super dirty. You know, a maximalist shoe that more could that you. more the increased cushioning or the 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 four foot rocker right here might unload it. But if that thing is too rocker and it's holding your foot and it toes an extension, that's actually going to increase the stress on the plantar fascia. That's actually a test called the windlass test where you yank the person's toe into extension and poke that area. If it hurts, it's positive. That's how you stress it. So. I, I totally – and then it's the same thing with you'll, you know, a lot of people go, oh, I need to go buy a support shoe. That might be helpful. That also might increase stress in that area. So I think going, hey, do I need a new shoe is probably the first question you really need to think about. Do I need to go like spend a bunch of extra stuff or do I need to address what's going on? Do I need to address the fact that I'm not sleeping, not eating very well and I've got a condition where my body's not doing super hot and I haven't given it the environment to heal? Is it because my shoes are super old and worn down and maybe it's time for a new pair to re to, re to reduce some of the stress there? Is it because you're overtraining? Is it because you're loading the thing in a way that there's something maintenance-wise you haven't been addressing? Those are probably the bigger questions, as David mentioned, that you need to address before you start starting to think about what exact shoe do I need? And then after that, it's going, why am I having this problem and what shoe might help kind of facilitate that? But again, it's going to be a short-term solution probably. Like the orthotic, you're probably going to need to address what's driving this. Yep. And I, I totally agree with y'all. And there isn't a shoe profile that's going to say, this is the right shoe profile for plantar fascia pain. It's more like, 
What is your runner profile right now? What are your aggravating factors? That will drive your shoe. So let's say you have pain at the toe-off part of, of running or of walking. Maybe a more rigid forefoot with a rocker could help because then you don't have to go through that windless mechanism, maybe. Um, so just depending on what is your mechanism of pain generation, match a shoe to limit that. Like if you're having a lot of pain barefoot, Maybe having a shoe that allows a lot of motion, maybe that's not what you want. Maybe you want something that's more structured because then it can provide more stability for your foot, right? So like think about what's caught when, what situations are causing your issues. Maybe try a shoe that creates a new environment for your foot, kind of in the same way that um, there's a short-term benefit of like over-the-counter orthotics in the same way you could find the right shoe that, you know, does the, does the deal, um, changes the environment in a way that decreases some of that soreness. So no silver bullet when it comes to shoes. Well, thank you all for joining us for this episode. Really fun to talk about plantar fascia pain because it's a really interesting topic. A lot of runners end up dealing with it at some point in their life. Remember, there's differential diagnoses that are important to rule in or out. Um, So find a great PT that you can work with. Uh, I I think they can just be an amazing resource for you. And if you have an idea for that segment where we talk about, quickly talk about the shoe that we are currently testing, we would love to hear your ideas for that segment. Or if you think it's a terrible segment, we don't have to continue doing it, but we thought it might be fun to give a little flavor of the things we're testing. Um, So feel free to follow us as always on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. But I think the besting the besting. Oh my gosh. The the best thing y'all can do to help us. um, We've just appreciated the growth we've seen in the podcast it's still weird to us that a lot of people listen to this podcast in the first place. So we thank you all for following us. Something that really helps us continue to grow is if you just subscribe to the podcast. And if you leave a review on Apple podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening, the more reviews we have, the more reach we have. And that allows us more time to dedicate to stuff like this. So um, appreciate you all following along with us and we'll see you all next time.